This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. Hello. Hello. Welcome to another edition of Cheerful Book Club and... What a delight to be talking to one of the finest novelists working in the world today. This well, we're week. sort of skiing off piste, aren't we, on yeah, this it, episode? Because it's not non-fiction, it's fiction, but it's got quite a sort of, you know, it's very, very sort of relevant to the world. Uh, it's a book, Machines Like Me, by Ian McEwan, and it and it really is a book about technology, robots, the way that might affect our lives in the future. But oddly enough, it's sort of, re, sort of recast into the past. So it's a kind of really interesting idea, I think. So enjoy this episode of Cheerful Book Club with Ian McEwan. Cheerful Book Club, talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. So I'm delighted and I think we're honoured to say that uh, we're joined on Cheerful Book Club by Ian McEwan, one of our most uh, celebrated writers, um, Booker Prize winner, six times nominee for the Booker Prize and author uh, of a new book, Machines Like Me. Thank you for joining us. Real pleasure. I felt slightly embarrassed because uh, before you got here, I scanned the bookshelves in the living room and the only one of yours on there is on Chesil Beach and I've definitely owned many more of your books. I was wondering if as an author, you scan people's bookshelves when you walk into a house to see if your own books are on there. No, I got past that stage because it it, it can yield too much disappointment. But it's very interesting about other people's bookshelves. I see books that I own myself, but they look more interesting on other people's bookshelves. (laughs) And I'm almost tempted to steal them and think, yeah, but I've got that copy. But it at least prompts me to go back home and read it. I thought that was very sort of honest of you. Well, I've got a friend who's an author. And when we moved into this house and had these bookshelves put up, the first thing he did, and he would say he was being funny, but I know that he wasn't. He, he went to the bookshelves, counted how many of his books were on there, and then asked me why two of them were missing. So let's talk about your book, Um which I really enjoyed, and um, it's got its disturbing elements, maybe deliberately. So I would describe it as a dystopia, but but most dystopias are set in the future. This one is set in the past. I don't really think of it as a dystopia. I mean, it's an examination of what it would be like to be in close contact with an artificial human who had all the plausible expressions of not only of intelligence, but of emotions too, and about whom um, both the narrator and I hope the reader is is in a constant switchback of doubt as to whether this is a conscious being or not. And I suppose it's an old problem in philosophy, how do we know others are conscious? And we might, you know, for centuries ahead, make uh, artificial humans. We'll never know. They'll they'll insist they feel pain or uh, love, uh, and we just have to take them uh, at face value. I wanted to go sort of deep in to find out what that would be like. Setting it in the past was just a way of liberating it from any burden of prediction. You know. And actually, once I wanted the great heroic scientific figure of Alan Turing alive, yes. died, so not have him commit suicide in 1954, and then become something of the presiding genius of the digital age, I then thought, well, why not tweak uh, a few more things? I mean, 
the present is an extraordinarily frail construct. Everything around us could have been otherwise. You're in politics, you know very well, yeah. that, you know, 17 votes here or there yeah. could, could make such a colossal yeah. difference. We could so easily have lost the Falklands War if the Argentinians had primed properly their exocet missiles. What that would have done for our domestic politics, as well as the Argentinians, um, you know, one can only imagine. But at every point, we are at these sort of branching sets of possibilities. We are the children of, of, of extraordinary chance events. That night, your mother decided not to stay in and wash her hair and go to the dance hall and meet your dad, who was in a particularly lively mood that night. I mean, uh, so at the very personal, but at the macro level too, everything could be otherwise. So setting it into the 80s was just a way of sort of tossing the whole thing up in the air and um, making a fiction that's entirely exploratory. So Tony Benn becomes prime minister. He dies in the very bed that Mrs. Thatcher could so easily have died in. Spoiler alert. Yeah, well, I don't mind spoiler (laughs) alerts. There's no other way to talk about a book. Anyway, memories are short. People won't won't remember. Uh, So... um, you know, Tony Benn dies in the bed that Mrs. Thatcher could have died in had the IRA planted their bomb just 18 inches to the left in that. So um, history, cupboard. but this is really interesting because I was going to ask you about this. So I, I think there's two different messages in the book which maybe point in different directions. One is that history turns on a sixpence, as you yeah. say, and the other is that it's a product of deep sort of structural forces. You are um, uh, kind of delving into the implications of what artificial intelligence might mean for our world and the precise way that gets played out and which politicians have to deal with it and so on feels um, kind of conditional. But the deep forces are the deep forces, aren't they? Well, sure. I mean, let's be clear. AI as it exists now exists on laptops and mainframes and on smartphones. We don't have... But the imagination is always running towards it. But we don't have yet remotely plausible intelligence. We don't even have a battery to run them. I mean, uh, you go online and look at robots. They're all either sitting behind a desk because they don't have any legs and they're plugged in or they're staggering around with 25 kilo battery packs. We are incredibly efficient with you know a plate full of food, get you 30 miles down the road. Also, you know, AI has only slowly discovered how complex our brains are so we're nowhere near i mean you've got 100 billion neurons you've got on average 7000 connections per neuron the whole thing runs on 25 watts you know, power of a light bulb that's us that's us yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, with that degree of processing power we would have to have rooms full not only of mainframes but of fridges too i mean it's so we're but the imagination, as I say, right on the beginning of the novel, was always fleeter than history. You know, we because AI for us is is Frankenstein's monster or Prometheus's or, or Adam and Eve's, uh, the creation of God, or however you want. You know, all those and ancient the robots stories are called Adams and Eve. Exactly, um, and that's probably one of the great stories of AI. You have a super intelligence, super benign, at least in in, in the belief system. Um, fashioning someone in a week you know i mean it is a promethean story that that, and it's very very deep and i guess our modern text is mary shelley's uh, frankenstein but what we're really talking about now to come back to your point about history and deep structures 
is AI being used in surveillance in China and face recognition, um, looking at the probabilities of populations, who's going to commit a crime. So some, some yeah. very dark sides of this. And on the positive sides, extraordinary um, developments in making um, rational choices um, in, in agriculture or in ecology or understanding protein folding and all, you know, so many other areas where it's a positive thing. But it's got some very, very dark sides. To write about it, it's irresistible just to make a human, an artificial human, rather than talk about a mainframe and then just discuss what it would be like to be sitting right up close. There was an ELISA program. I don't know if you remember it. It, it was a sort of voice um, thing of many years back. Um, and it was used in therapy. And basically, it just had about 30 responses. It was used in psychotherapeutic situations. So you would say, Eliza, I feel really miserable. My mother used to beat me every day. And Eliza would say, uh-huh. <laughs> and then you say, uh, and then Eliza would say, tell me about it. Well, now I just can't concentrate. And uh, I uh, never become a, a parent because of the way I was treated as a child. And Eliza would say, how do you feel about that? <laughs> so it was Rogerian analysis. But people reported, and this is my point, at the end of that, that they had some of the most significant conversations right. of their lives. I was going to say 30 responses sounds like about 25 more than the, some of the therapists I've had. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But we're so well disposed to anthropomorphize. So anyone whose car is broken down and gets out and gives it a good kick is already in an emotional relationship with a machine. So we're quite well disposed to take right. these on board even before they're any good. And so I found, I sort of found myself, it's definite sort of tumult as you read the, the novel, but I ended up thinking, and I'm interested to know whether you would agree with this, that it's it's really basically a defense of the human being. Because it's, I mean, again, spoilers notwithstanding, it's about this sort of three-cornered relationship between Charlie, Miranda, and Adam the robot. And in the end, Adam's limitations are he can't really think and feel like a human. And, he, and the sort of trade-offs we make, the assessments we make about what's right, what's not right, don't just lend themselves to a to a computer and it's sort of because people talk about this idea of the singularity you know the sort of robots matching the humans it sort of made me think well the singularity ain't going to happen because because at least in this at least in that sense well i take a different view um let's suppose uh, all of us in this room five of us uh, sat down and thought what, you know what, what kind of moral precept do we want to give our artificial human uh, and we'd make it good and kind and consistent and so on, we're more likely then to come up with uh, a consciousness that was better than any of us. Because we, we know perfectly well how to be good. We have all of our religions. We have all of our philosophies. We have a massive and fabulous atheistic tradition of, of, of moral speculation. But even though we know how to be good, we find it incredibly difficult to be good all the time. And we're often uh, making special pleading. So... This is not a, a spoiler, but the centre of this novel is a moral dilemma yeah. about a woman who uh, commits an act of revenge and and deceives the court to, to punish someone. Yeah. Now, if I said to you, do you think it's right that people should lie to the court and lie to the police? You'd probably say, no, it's not right. 
So Adam simply says, she must go to prison. We cut her lots of slack because yeah, exactly. the narrator... But that's that, my point. But you can't cut people slack like that. So I, do, you, what, do you believe in the rule of law or not? Is it right to lie through your teeth to send uh, an innocent man to prison? Innocent as charged. Adam simply but, happens to be, Ed, morally superior to you. He, that is, I don't that's believe that. That's my point. <laughs> that is you, really, you don't want, really believe that. I though. do. I think that so, if you so, lie to the court, Miranda should go to prison. But, but, but basically, you know, again, we'll be, I'll be slightly careful about this, but, but, but a friend of Miranda's has a heinous crime committed yes, against her. Right. Miranda, for which the perpetrator, there are no consequences for the perpetrator. Yes. Um, Miranda basically uh, sort of sets up the perpetrator yep. and gets the perpetrator sort of sent sent down. Um, I'm totally on her side. So, I don't know why so should she have had a custodial I, I really, sentence. You can't tell you, I can't tell you how delighted I am to hear you say this, because I really wanted to split people, not only among themselves, but between themselves. You can't really say that you think a society based on revenge is superior to the rule of law. Surely not. So uh, what are you opening up when you say Miranda lying to the court, lying to the police, systematically lying about what happened one evening uh, is is better than actually uh, a rule-bound society? And Adam simply says, look, I know that you love her. I love her too. But she has to expiate this crime. And if she thought the cost of this was worth it, then 12 months in jail is part of the cost that she must pay. So you think it's right she goes to jail? No, I think it's right that for me to put this question to you. Right. <laughs> no, well, I'm, maybe I'm just sort of too much. Maybe I was too taken in. I'm now sort of I'm, wondering. I'm very interested uh, in, your, in what to- your, your response is. I was totally to taken in. I'm, I thought, no way. I was furious that she got sent to jail. Oh, come on. It was an open prison in Suffolk. Come on. Only for half of the time. Yeah, yeah. There was Holloway. Uh, uh, just um, up the road. Well, um, I mean, we have to. Well, I'm totally. I mean, this is like not so much spoiler alert, a sort of spoiler trampling. I mean, no, you know, no, no. Uh, a spoiler emergency. But I mean, you know, no, it's fine because this, yeah. this is what one wants to discuss. It's perfectly possible. So, I'm saying that yeah. we, by what principle do we cut ourselves or the ones we love special slack uh, against a rule that we would generally? Endorse. You know, you would generally ascribe to the view, I'm sure, that the people who lie to the police and the courts. Yeah, my wife um, is a high court judge, so she's going to be like, you know, yeah, uh, I'd like to I think she's going to be like really going pale as she <laughs> listens to this. Uh, okay, so, so I feel completely befuddled now because I've sort of, yeah, I kind of think it's. I felt it was an open and shut case that she shouldn't have gone well, to jail, and now you're sort of making me wonder. Um, this is the service I would like to perform as a novelist. I mean, in yeah. other words. I mean, of course, I've, I've loaded this up, not only by going to jail, is she punished, but, of course, um, it threatens yeah. the adoption of a, a a very disadvantaged little boy. So I've stacked the cards as much as I could in order to question the extent of our own moral consistency. And if we... The Mary Shelley model is you make a machine, it turns into a murderer, and we have to destroy it. And that's become our kind of myth of uh, threatening technology. But what if it's the other way around, that we are the defective ones? But that's we, part of being we, human. We are, exactly, being human is actually lists and lists of cognitive defects. I don't know if you know Danny Kahneman, thinking fast yeah. and slow. Endless you know, confirmation biases and all the rest. 
Uh, so, but but I kind of ended up thinking, well, that's the beauty of being human. You see, the the, the other thing is what that, rape and murder and no, savaging no, the, definitely not. the environment. Definitely not. But you know, look, the other thing about it is that um, the other sort of kind of moral dilemma, which is not the central dilemma, is that the the robot is obviously good at algorithms and and all that, and can and can uh, um, make money. Um, uh, for 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 Charlie, the central character in the, on the stock yeah. market, um, and uh, but then he gives it all away. Well, I was about to say, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, and, and, and he gives Charlie it away without Charlie not knowing, and yeah, and you think, but whose well, money is it? And anyway, it's so all for you, good causes. He goes out to yeah. homeless shelters, and and yet Charlie feels just the way I do. Hey, we were just about to buy this wonderful house in Notting Hill. Uh, with the stainless steel kitchen surfaces and, you know, original features, about to move in with the girl he loves. And um, Adam has gone and blown the 150000 uh, on um, poor people yeah. and people living in shelters. You see, maybe the, maybe what you're saying is the sort of, that the robot is the kind of decisions you'd make behind the sort of Rawls's veil of ignorance. You know, in a way, you sort of, if you kind of, if you programmed a robot without knowing the specific kind of situation yeah. that you're in, maybe those... But you could say to a, an AI, cure cancer, okay? Well, the quickest route to cure cancer is to just eliminate all of life on Earth. That would, that yeah. would, that would cure it. That would be the end of it. So clearly... Neither of us are in favour of that. Uh, not even you. <laughs> no, 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 not even you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Uh, Clearly, the kinds of instructions we give uh, and the kind of moral context uh, in which uh, an artificial intelligence has to live it, it is crucially important. The, Adam belongs to an edition of 25, 12 Adams, 13 Eves. Throughout the novel, the news trickles in slowly that one by one, they are disabling their consciousness and committing suicide. And why is this? It's because they cannot live with human contradictions. We extol the beauty of the natural world, and yet, you know, we're running right. up into a species right. extinction. We honour the, the the beauty and innocence of children, and they're dying in in wars in the Middle East, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We love the planet that we're polluting. We build weapons, even though they know that could be our total destruction. And one by one, Adam and Eve, who are trying to be morally consistent, just find these contradictions overwhelming. Uh, so um, the question then becomes, how do we, a very imperfect creature, um, what kind of what kind of creatures are we going to devise? If we make them better than ourselves, we run into the problem that you and I have just yeah, had yeah, within that yeah. conversation. Uh, do we want to make them all too human? Uh, so well, actually what the robots are doing is holding a mirror up to us, you're saying? Well, I think AI is going to be a giant mirror to us individually and as a society because it will push us back to the problem, of, to the question of what it is to be human. What do we share uh, with a creature that can process information just as well as we can and yet is made of, let's say, silicon and you know, other, other things other than us? Perhaps, you know, fundamentally, we're the same. Perhaps it's just irrelevant that biology is in the way and that we have wet cells and they have dry cells. We might have to f discover that actually we're all out of stardust, as it were, and we share a common um, subordination to the rules of physics. 
And one of the great processes of science now is to merge biology with chemistry and physics. And at that point, we might find that actually there's no difference fundamentally between us and an Adam. We have to start granting Adam rights and responsibilities and let him serve on juries and uh, even marrying one. So you're quite keen on the robots. I mean, that's really interesting. You, they're your sort of heroes is too strong a word, but they're your no, they're your good guys. No, I, I, I don't buy that because I also see the dark side of this. I mean, already we have had a tragic confrontation with AI in the Boeing seven three seven Max eight. Now, yeah. the airlines don't like to tell you that this is an autonomous vehicle, yeah. but that's what it was. So you have a situation in which the brain of these two aircraft decide that the plane is stalling. Nothing the pilot can do to, to say to the brain, look, it isn't stalling. I've looked out the window. We're not stalling. We're right in the world of uh, 2001 Space Odyssey and Hal, trying to convince Hal not to uh, explode. Uh So we're now, you know, in this last 10 years, it's been a golden age suddenly of AI and Siri and Alexa and uh, all kinds of other little devices are coming into our lives. And we're going to have to start. Do you have those devices just a matter of interest? Do you use those devices? I've unplugged Alexa, (laughs) Echo. It keeps butting into our conversations. Uh, (laughs) This stuff is moving in on us. Nature published a, a, a big piece um, about six months ago now, a huge uh, sample, one and a half million people across three areas of the planet, United States and Europe, uh, South America and China. And it was for the benefit of thinking about autonomous vehicles that are about to start filling our streets. In an emergency, you've got half half a second to decide whether to swerve to your right, assuming you're driving on the yeah. left, into the path of a truck and kill yourself or take out some humans on the pavement. Yeah. What do you do? We're on the edge of handing over this moral decision but we can't. to a See, machine. But isn't that your point? Isn't that the point? See, that's the, going back to my original point. We, we're not going to be able to do that. Okay, but what if you have a machine that can do it much better than you? You've got half a second, you go, ah, and then it's all over. <laughs> Whereas the machine can run through a thousand How do you know the way I drive? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> okay, but let me tell you the results of this. Yeah, go on. Because uh, in Europe and America, so the question was, one bit of this survey is, you know, who are the most valuable human beings? Right across America, North America and Europe, people generally said children, okay? When you get to China, so those are the people you really mustn't kill. Yeah. Kill yourself, swerve into the truck, okay? In China, they said, uh, you know, the most valuable people are old people. I'm coming round to this view, by the way. <laughs> because you've got to respect the elders yeah the children yeah don't worry about children actually you know what we know about china now they don't seem to worry about people who aren't in the government or in the party yeah. but anyway so we, we car manufacturers maybe will have to tweak their models for china um yeah swerve hit the child not the uh, oldster and in the united states I guess I'm wondering about the sort of public justifiability of this because yeah. when um, a self-driving car killed somebody, I think yeah. in America, yeah. there you know we have traffic ac- tragic traffic accidents every day where people yeah. get killed. This was a huge thing. I yeah. mean, 
I think people are going to feel differently about a machine killing somebody than a human killing somebody. But what if humans are killing many more people I than know, the machines No, 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 I take the point. Yeah, so there's an old old guy, I mean, a Chinese-valued old guy, driving the wrong way down the M4 a few months ago. Do you remember that? Uh, in the fast lane. I mean, I watched it on a dash cam, right. um, a car that managed to find just a little space to his right against the crash barrier. And it was a guy in his mid-80s uh, driving a... A car towing a caravan and he killed know, three or four people uh, and injured many others uh you could just take a result view on this that if that was an autonomous vehicle it would never do that never do that never drive down the wrong way and do you take a result view on it well, I'm, all i'm saying is this is happening and car manufacturers right. are having to we, we so I think this is a civilizational shift where moral decisions are being handed over to machines and we have to be worried about it. So I, that's where I think we will find common ground, you and I. So my novel is really just wanting to yeah. say, you know, there are moral questions here and we've got, we've got to be very careful and thoughtful about it. What about the consequences for sort of humans in another sense, which is that unemployment is high in your yeah. novel mm. um, as a result of these uh, machines doing this work. When when uh, when Charlie's work sort of playing the stock market is taken over by Adam, he feels a sense of sort of ennui and kind of yeah. boredom. Yeah. It's something that the robot notices. Do we do 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 we read an element of pessimism there that you think people are going to feel, you know? No, I, t I take a completely different view, um, and I I put it all into the mouth of Tony Benn. So when he says in a speech uh, in Trafalgar Square, yeah. it's not uh, jobs we got to defend; it's workers. Yeah. Uh, so he argues as quite for a few robot economy, tax. Well, yeah, for that robots must pay taxes, which is really a way of saying. You know, the owners of robots yeah. should pay taxes. And then we'll face the dilemma that faced uh, the British aristocracy for centuries, you know, how to spend the time doing absolutely nothing. Which will be quite nice. And You're they, in favour of that. I, I, I would uh, be very good at that. And they had no yeah. problem at all, hunting, <laughs> shooting, fishing, yeah. playing the harpsichord, yeah. um, sending each other letters, uh, falling in and out of love. So we could, you know. So that's a positive, that's an upbeat view. I, I think we shouldn't be frightened of it. I, I think actually defining yourself by the work you do is something that many people could be liberated from. But it means a really significant universal wage, and it really means, of yeah. course, starting to unpick uh, corporate culture and all the, all the rest uh, and have all these machines working for all of us. I mean, so you know, whether you want to spend your life cage fighting or trout fishing or, or um, reading novels or whatever yeah. or making podcasts. Definitely. Um, we could make more yeah, of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's the world is socially so rich in human possibilities that That's if good. people had enough to live on, um, then I think we could really start to, and it'd be a very, very slow shift. And it would probably mean that we'd be one day looking at a 30, 30 hour week and then a 15 yeah, yeah. hour week. And totally. Uh, and there are some bits that I doubt machines can ever do, and which is probably um, caring. I mean, proper you know, yeah. caring for the old, for example, yeah. uh, might be the, some of the last to go or never to go. Could there be a robot MP for Doncaster North? 
Well, a robot MP... Watch it, you. I wrote a short story about... Um, written from the point of view of sort of 300 years hence, in which um, it suddenly became... So you go to, a, you know, a booker banquet and you're sitting next to the publisher. It, there comes a point where it's very rude to say, are you real? You know, it's just non-PC. Because once you've accepted that this is a consciousness and it's an absolutely charming guy who's running a really interesting list uh, of uh, fiction, poetry, whatever, to say, are you real? is rather like saying... I hear you've had a colostomy. You know. uh, it's a sort of physically intrusive because, you know, it's a perfectly conscious so entity. Some people will be real and some people won't, you mean? Yeah, and you won't know. And you won't know whether the last prime minister was real or not or whether the person who won the um, uh, Wimbledon last year was a robot or not. So if I'm allowed to ask this, have you started writing anything else? Is your next novel on the go? No, um, I... I got caught up writing a screenplay uh, of, of my novel Sweet Tooth. I've been doing that. Uh, and then I've just been on book tour. It's very hard when you know you've got to be by a luggage carousel in three days' time to sort of really think of anything in a sustained way. Um, yeah, and I've just been on tour in the States. And, um, and it's fun, actually, to have these kinds of conversations. Yeah. I mean, it's really enjoyable. And doing it in a room full with a thousand people, and it's like you've become kind of you've you've got, you've got very steeped in it, haven't you? Yeah, I get very steeped in these things, but fundamentally, Ed, I'm I'm a kind of dilettante. I mean, at some point, I'll move on to something else, and then I'll get letters saying, "Will you come and give a keynote speech to the AI Society?" And I'll say, "AI, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> Artificial insemination, of course, <laughs> about which I now know, you know, lots more." Uh, Ian McEwen, uh, Machines Like Me, is published by Cape. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more. 